Hello, I'm Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be talking to the amazing James Cohen. James has been working in the motion design industry from the late 90s. He has had an amazing freelance career, working at most of the top studios in Sydney and Melbourne. He's also had stints at the ABC and Foxtel before starting his own motion design studio, Yes Captain, where he specialises in creating 2D and 3D animation for opening titles, TVCs and infographics. James is amazingly passionate about cinema 4D and motion design. That passion led James to create the NodeFest conference that was a huge success. Today I'll be talking to James about his career, I'll also be talking to him about the state of the industry and we'll be discussing his future ideas for the NodeFest conference. James has a bit of a cold today, so if you could bear with us a little bit, he might be a bit croaky or breathing a bit heavy. But anyway, we'll give it our best shot. All right, let's get into it. Thanks very much for taking the time to come in and share your experience with us, James. No worries, Matthew. Thanks for having me. As you've had an extensive career as a freelancer, I'm going to ask you first, what are the skills that you need to be a successful freelancer? I think in Australia, uh, you've got to be diverse. You've got to have a good um, general knowledge of as much as possible, if you can. Uh, it might be different in other countries, but here, if you can have a bit of an understanding of design and uh, movement, timing, and certainly those principles rather than just the software, that would hold you in good stead. So learn as much as you can. It's a small industry. Um, there's not going to be a specific job come up all the time. So you've got to adapt and be able to take that job and that job and that job. If all those jobs are a little bit different, you need to be able to adapt and pretty much do a bit of everything. You're an After Effects Cinema 4D guy. What is it that you think you need to be strong in in Cinema 4D? Timing is probably one of the most important if you're looking at any sort of animation program. So having a good eye for movement and overlapping of motion so that things aren't just one thing happens, then another thing then another thing, that's boring. You've really got to get this organic flow. So again, it comes back to not just learning the buttons and watching tutorials uh, and being able to do the same MoGraph cool stuff that everyone can do. All that's fine, but it's it's more having uh, a sense of timing and then having uh, your own style and your, your own flavour coming into it. So if you're watching lots of tutorials, that's fine. But don't just copy those tutorials. Take those tutorials further. Apply your own learning to it um, and try and get your own style into it and add something different to it. And don't put a tutorial in your showreel unless you've really made it your own. What are the important things that people should know before commencing a career as a freelancer? Not just something to know, but something to do. Perhaps save up some money because you might be out of work for a while. You might not have anything for a while. It might take a while to form a network, form connections. It's not necessarily a measure of your work. It's just people will hire who they know or who they've had recommended to them more than anything. So uh, don't go into it without any money behind you to live off uh, for a while. So save some funds, uh, you know, do a, a basic kind of job working at a retail place or whatever it is whilst you're studying, save up some pennies so that when you do break into freelance, you've got a little bit of a buffer. That would be my biggest piece of advice. I learned the hard way. So I'm about to do some more freelancing at the moment. Have you got some money saved <laughs> I've got up? no money in the well, bank. Well, then you're in trouble. <laughs> so what other things do you think you need to know about freelancing before you get into it? I think I'm freelance because I hate working for people, like in a full-time capacity. I've only had two full-time jobs and I can't stand it. I hate the idea that you have to be there at nine till six every day and at the whim of some other moron that doesn't know what they're doing or have to apply and fill out a form to have time off and only allowed a certain amount of time off a year. I mean, that's just crap. And who's going to say I'm going to be creative on a Tuesday? Yeah. I might not be feeling particularly creative on a Tuesday. I might feel more creative on a Saturday. Like yeah. there's no switch of when creativity turns on and off. So that's one of the reasons I've always loved freelance before setting my own studio up, which I think is an extension of being freelance. Yeah. Um, because I could then, you know, kind of have some sort of flexibility about when I worked and when I didn't work. The things I learned in my freelance career, I freelanced in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne over probably 15 years before starting my own studio. The thing I learned in that time is you've got to be quick. You've got to move pretty quick. Um, and you can't necessarily know that when you're young and starting out, but you'll, you'll learn that as you go. 
And don't panic. We're not saving lives here. You'll get it done. You'll find a way. There's plenty of times I've been on a job and you've only worked at this particular studio for a nanosecond and they'll want something pumped out by the end of the day and you'll be absolutely shitting yourself. How am I going to get this done? I've had it many times. But just slow down, breathe, do what you do. You know your stuff. You love what you do. You'll get there. You know, and usually it comes together in the last minute before it's due, but you'll, you'll get there. Don't panic. That's one key. Invoicing dollars-wise, it's pretty straightforward these days, I think. I mean, you'll just invoice at the end of the job. You know, you're not going to get paid anything upfront as a freelancer, where a studio might. I recommend try and put two-week terms. I mean, no one pays in 30 days, really. Everyone's late, big or small. It's a pain in the butt. But if you put two weeks on your terms, it'll be kind of in the face of the employer. And then it won't be paid on the two weeks, but it'll be paid slightly after. So at least you'll get it maybe quicker or you will actually get it in 30 days rather than 30-day terms and then they'll still be two weeks late. With my experience with that, I've often wanted to be paid fortnightly. As a freelancer. As a freelancer. If you're on a big job, I think that's fair, yeah. absolutely. If, there's a, if we're employing someone and it's a six-week job, yeah we'll, yeah, we'll have a friendly chat. So have a friendly chat with the people that you're working with. Uh, yeah. Most studios should be flexible. Don't be afraid of putting your terms up front, but just do it in a nice way, in a casual way. I agree with that totally. If you don't accept what they're offering and they really want you, you can possibly get more. It's a two-way relationship. You're not a button pusher. You know, you are valuable. The freelancers we have are the most important asset we have. Yeah. So you've been on both sides of the fence as a business owner and a freelancer. What do you think the going rates are and, and does it vary between animation artists and 3D modelers or 2D artists? What are your thoughts? I think it's more related to age and experience. Uh, generally, freelancers might range from 300 to 600 a day, maybe a touch more than 600 if they're really good. And that would be the 600 might be the higher end of someone that can do After Effects and 3D really well. You know, they might be late 20s, early 30s or something, or a bit more. So they've been around doing it for a few years. If you're a junior just starting out, I think they'd be around the three, dollars $400 a day, depending on what they're doing. If we pay someone $600 a day, I mean, it doesn't leave much for us. So even though they're really worth it, it's, um, they add up pretty quickly, freelancers. So how much does that sort of calculate into hourly? No idea. Um, I mean, no one really charges hourly these days. They charge day. It's good if you can be a bit flexible too and have, maybe reduce your rate a tiny bit for a weekly rate. And if someone like my studio, if we're going to hire you, and if we're going to give you a guaranteed month's work or something, you might be able to reduce it a tiny bit because you're getting a guaranteed chunk of change. When I was in Popcorn, I was getting people from 550 to 700 a day, uh-huh. which is five years ago. 700 was what I charged when I finished freelancing around five, six years ago. So that was a lot. That was yeah. high. And I'd be a bit of a bully because I had the confidence then that I can put my rate up. I knew Machette. Yeah. Often too, you've got to say an amount because you know they'll come back and try and chop it a bit. Yeah. So I say 700 and this, whoever's employing me might come back and go, oh, we can only afford 650. It's like, well, that's what I actually was, so yeah. I think that negotiation's a key part, like deciding on your rate and having boundaries. So you won't go this low and you won't go that high. Yeah, you know, you've or- got to know what you're worth, which takes a while to know. It takes a while to be confident. I remember when I was in Sydney, it was about eight years ago now, I didn't have the confidence to defend my rate, which was really frustrating and it stayed with me because it disappointed me that I didn't have more balls to stand up for what I was worth. But it's a, you know, those negative things are a good lesson in life. Yeah. Um, this particular pro- producer praised me because I could do 3D and 2D and how rare that was. And then he laughed at me when I said my rate was 550. Yeah. And this is eight years ago. You know, I should have told him to go jump, but instead I took the job for less than my rate. So what does a good freelance reel contain? Only your best work and make it as short as possible. I'm sure I'm saying things that everyone said, but around a minute is, is a really great length. Leave me wanting more. And when you cut your showreel, then watch it and take the three worst pieces out and then watch it again and hopefully it'll be better. What you shouldn't put in, this peeves me off no end, don't add the date. I don't care what year your showreel is made. That might make you feel warm and fuzzy. But if you've made your showreel in 2013 and you haven't had a chance to update it because everyone gets really busy, in 2017, if you're sending it to me, it looks terrible. It looks to me like, oh, what's this guy been doing for four years? So it's just not important. And it'll look if your showreel is still really good from 2013, but I don't know it's made in 2013, I'm just looking at your work. You know, showreel 2013, I don't care. Just say showreel. <laughs>
That is fantastic advice. That's spot on. How do you think that freelancers should market themselves? We're in motion design and a big part of motion design often is branding. So with branding, I think you really should brand yourself. You're a product. You know, you as a freelancer, you're a product. In the same way I might market Yes Captain. It's really cheap these days to buy a domain name and buy a Squarespace package and make a, a website. So many people just don't have that. And I really think you should because you've got to sell yourself. I kind of think there's no excuse for that anymore. I think, you know, so many people will send me stuff and it'll be from blah, blah at gmail.com. Just buy a domain name, you know, even if it's your name.com. And some people do do it and it looks fantastic. So sell me yourself. And along with that, we get a lot of emails every week from people looking for work. And firstly, apologies to everyone that we don't get time to reply to. I, it, I feel terrible every time, but there's so many, we just don't have time. I'd be full-time answering emails. People write these huge emails. I don't have time to read your life story. I don't have time to read six paragraphs about why you want to work at anywhere. Thank you, that's nice. Don't do it. Keep it to one paragraph, one sentence, because all I do is go down and see the blue link to your showreel. I suffer from that myself. I love a good email, uh, especially a long one. That's I've very received plenty of your emails, Matthew, I know. <laughs> uh, I get satisfaction out of the length. No, it's not about length. I agree with you totally. It's, it's about girth. It's one of my, uh, thanks for that, it's one of my weaknesses. Mm. Stop it. Quick story. There's a great freelancer who's worked for us and before I knew him, he would just, uh, out of the blue, he emailed me. It was short, it was sweet, it was funny, it was different, it stood out. Uh, he also had a nice little GIF animated signature on the bottom of his email which stood out, showed some creative flair and he I think I had time at that time to respond. Um, and he just politely said, hey, do you mind if I keep in touch from time to time? And he and I said, yeah, and he did. And he, every now and again, just like maybe twice a year, he would say hi, and we didn't have any work for him at the time. But what he did was kept himself at the top of my mind. If we get heaps of emails of different freelancers and sometimes we don't have any work for them and sometimes we do, if depending on their skill set, depending on the jobs we get in. So eventually we got him in and now he's someone that we go to all the time. And he's like one of my first or second that I'll ring because he's so good. But he did a really great job of not spamming me, not annoying me, like others have. Any advice when you go into a studio on what not to do? Leave your pants at home, <laughs> like you did today. Okay. Uh, what not to do? <laughs> I can laugh at your jokes if you want. Yeah. I'm trying, not no. to, I'm trying to be restrained. <laughs> <laughs> Many people don't laugh at my jokes for a good reason. They're not funny. Yeah. Uh, what not to do? Don't be bloody late. Or if you do, email you know, make up for it. If you're a bit late, don't walk out the door at six o'clock or something. You yeah. know, balance it out, keep it fair. I think the biggest thing that you need not to do is to not make them worry. Mm -hmm. Don't make them think that you're not going to get the job done on time or you're not going to rock up on time or it's to keep the producer worry-free. Mm -hmm. If you can do that, then it's going to get you more work. Even if your work's not as great, they don't have to worry about you. They're mm -hmm. generally much more happy. Yeah, sure. What movies or TV shows inspired you when you were growing up? Similar to a lot of people in my generation, you know, your Star Wars, your Spielberg stuff. Jim, Jim Hansen were huge um, influences on me. I love puppets and, and all that stuff. So Dark Crystal and you name it, all that good stuff. Love it. X-Files? No, no, never watched it. Don't care. When did you discover 3D for motion design and how did you become passionate about it? It happened without me knowing what it was at a very young age. I was nine. I was watching the cricket, Channel 9. It was, so it was mid-80s. And the, the stumps would draw on in this cylindrical fashion and the batsman would appear and then he'd hit the ball and the ball would come at you. This was the opening graphics of the Channel 9 cricket. And I was like, how did I do that? So I didn't know at nine what motion graphics was, but I was fascinated by that. And then... Because I grew up in Hobart and we only had two TV stations. We had ABC and we had this thing called Taz TV, which was terrible, but it would get all the best shows from 7, 9 and 10 and mix them all together. And they thought it looked like one station, but I could kind of tell. No one else at school gave a shit, but I could kind of tell that, hang on, that program's Channel 7 and that program's Channel 9. So I had this kind of natural, I was drawn to all these, you know, logos and promos and stuff that these stations were making. And back then the TV stations were making awesome promos, like all the big still the one promos and Channel 9 balls swimming, flying around and they used to do the coolest stuff and so that's what I wanted to do. Sadly, 
they don't do it anymore because TV's changed so much. So how did you get from Tasmania to Queensland? I applied for the Victorian College of Art, Film and TV. I didn't get in. I cried for a week. I was very upset. And my film and TV teacher at school in Hobart said there was the Queensland College of Art. So I went up for an interview for film and television, showed them almost... I didn't have much. I mean, I'd only made a kind of a doco spoof documentary. But I had lots of drawings. I would always draw. That was my big thing on the weekend. Drawing, 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 cartoons, blah, blah, blah. They looked at my stuff and they said, yeah, I think maybe you'd be better suited to the animation. So I was a bit disheartened. I felt like I wasn't getting into the film course. They sent me up to the animation area and I had an interview with them. Turns out I got into both, but they didn't tell me. They gave me the film course because that was my first choice. So it would have been really interesting if I had have had that choice back then of whether to go film and TV or animation because obviously now I've kind of come full circle and I'm more of an animator. But the film course was really, it was good in that it, taught you narrative, taught you storytelling, you know, and that's still important no matter whether it's live action or animation. So there was a skinny, pale Tasmanian boy wandering around the Queensland College of Art. It was pretty funny. (laughs) So you started off at Queensland College of the Arts. Could you briefly describe your career path since then? Unexpectedly, I was at uni in the mid-90s and the web exploded. I was studying film and TV, but I was really curious as to what the hell these web pages were. So I snuck into the design courses sat in the background and watched them, and I then got interested in building web pages. That led to working in multimedia when I left uni. So I didn't go straight into working in film and TV. I got drawn into multimedia. That led into getting excited about 3D computer graphics and stuff like that. So one thing kind of led to another. So I went through websites, learning Max and Maya and all that kind of stuff, and eventually kind of flowed into a freelance career of being a designer animator. So I guess it's just a long history of thankfully being able to draw and always being interested in computers, all of this stuff kind of merged together. And so then I, uh, straight out of uni, had a couple of jobs working in multimedia. So you started off in Queensland, then you moved to Melbourne, up to Sydney, and then back to Melbourne. Is that how it went? I was in Brisbane for 14 years and most of it freelance, finding my own clients. I actually moved down to Melbourne. I was only here eight months when I got a random offer to work at, uh, on Happy Feet at Dr D. And I thought, why not? I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity. So we went up to Sydney and was there for two years. I only worked on Happy Feet for about seven months. It was a great experience, but I found that it was um, the long form isn't really for me. I prefer the short form. Over the years, which project do you think was the most successful and satisfying? Definitely the end titles for the Killer Elite that I did at Allura. That was an awesome project. I'd been trying to work at Allura for ages and uh, finally when I got a foot in, didn't know what project I was going to be working on until I turned up and they said, yeah, you're working on the end titles for a feature film with Robert De Niro and Jason Statham. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. And there was five weeks to do it. There was a good amount of time. That's such a rare thing. And you worked in a team on that project? Yeah, I did a fair bit of it on my own um, because all the, their regular full-timers were busy on other projects but certainly didn't do it myself. Um, yeah. the, the creative director, Stephen Van he was awesome. He kind of set the style and had a good vision of what it should be. I was sort of the lead designer and then at the end a couple of their full-time designers, when they became available, they helped me out with some compositing at the end. Have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them? I would see it as a failure. Other people might be kinder to say it wasn't. I made a short film when I was um, 28 and it took nine years to make and I didn't anticipate it taking that bloody long. It was 10 minutes long. It was all shot in front of blue screen. took five days to shoot, no problem. And being naive, I thought, because we couldn't afford the locations. There was 20 locations. Uh, And I thought, oh, I'll just do it in post, no problem. It'll take me six months. took me nine years. And it was going to be my calling card to get work. And it did, but I didn't expect it to get me work before I'd finished it. I mean, it was what got me work on Happy Feet. So anyway, it got me work on cool stuff before it finished, but then it was a real hard thing to get it finished because I was always so busy working. Finally got it finished. It got into some film festivals. We went to Palm Springs. That was awesome. But because it took nine years, it didn't look as good. It had aged. And did you feel sad about it? or? Oh, yeah, definitely, because it cost a lot to make, money and time. Yeah, It was so hard to finish it. There were times I'd be working on it every weekend. I could, every spare hour. And friends were like, why aren't you coming out? Yeah. Got to get this bloody film done. I should have saved up money and taken six months off work and just sat there and did it for six months straight. But I was doing it part-time at night, an hour here, an hour here. And as we all know, you can't spend an hour on computer graphics. You need to spend a day. What is the hardest thing you had to learn to progress your career? Learning how to run a small business, and I'm still learning that. Because I'm not a businessman, I'm a creative, I'd like to think. 
while you were freelancing, you were working in high-end animation studios like Engine, Allura, and you were also working at television stations like Foxtel and the ABC for periods between two and seven months as a freelancer. Mm -hmm. What did you learn through this period? I learned that you've got to be quick. You've just got to pump the work out very quickly. So, and, and somehow you've still got to provide quality in that too, so you just can't muck around. So you've got to be confident with your ideas, back your ideas and go for it, I think. Okay, so with those different places like Engine, Allura and many others, yeah. what was the variations between the workflow, the production pipelines, the cultures in the different studios? They're all reasonably the same. I mean, ABC was very limited in budget and resources, as you'd expect, being public broadcaster. Um, but that probably meant there was a bit, bit of fun there. Um, there was kind of this young ragbag team, so that was good. Foxtel was a little bit clinical at times because it was such a massive entity. Z Space was great because I was there for about six months, learned a lot from them. Um, it was a nice small family kind of feel, um, really talented people, so that was great. Um, the highlight probably at Engine uh, was that they had their own chef yep. and he'd make amazing food for you every day and they just docked it out of your freelance pay, like 10 bucks, but I would have paid 30 bucks. Like this guy made curries from scratch. It was exceptional. But the pipelines were all pretty much the same. The big difference really, and I hate to be our whole Sydney versus Melbourne, after two years in Sydney, and I came back to Melbourne and worked at Lura. The people at Allura were so friendly. It was a massive difference. Not to say Sydney people weren't, but they kind of kept to themselves. You know, there'd be the full-time people that just wouldn't talk to you if you're a freelancer. There was a bit of a divide. It was a bit snobbish sometimes, uh, unfortunately. But Allura, the nicest place I've ever worked, the best place I've ever worked without, without any doubt. So the pipelines all were pretty similar? Yeah. Like Okay. Surprisingly, Foxtel, they had a terrible system. of They didn't have a backup system. Like it was up to the freelancers or the animators at the end of every day to copy files manually to from our desktops to some single machine yeah. for it to then get sent off somewhere. I was surprised that such a big place didn't have a proper backup. What was it like working at George Miller's Dr. D Studios and what was the project that you worked on? Yeah, it was a pretty unique opportunity to get to work on um, Happy Feet, uh, Dr. D uh, in Sydney. It was great to meet George Miller. He was a lovely guy. To get to go out and watch him direct motion capture, to see people dancing around with the ping pong suits and massive plasma, and you can see that being transformed into penguins straight away. Um, so it was a unique opportunity and one I'll never forget, but it just it wasn't for me. I was working on the same shop for months and months and months. There were people that worked there for four years. I, I just, yeah, long form's not for me. So what was your day-to-day -day like if you were working on the same project? A little bit boring. I mean, that's why I had to move on. Uh, it wasn't stimulating enough. You know, there were too many meetings and it was a bit too clinical for me. There was a big pipeline. They were all about pipeline. But it felt like there was just too much mucking about at the start of the project. I mean, and there was so much money spent on things. And then yet they were still doing huge late nights and weekends at the end of the four years. So I was working in previous look development, a new look development department that they were setting up. We had to put glints in the eyes of the penguins. We had to put shadows under their feet. And this is previous. This isn't the final renders and stuff. So it was kind of crazy just how much work was going into making previous look pretty. I kind of felt it seemed a bit unnecessary. I think you could get to a result quicker than that. But anyway, that's, that was their show. That's what they wanted to do. Now I'm going to move on to Yes Captain. Mm -hmm. it seems like you've been going for a long time now. <laughs> is there a story behind the name Yes Captain? There is a story more about the logo than the name. When I was a kid, there was a logo for boating equipment and it looked like my dad. It was this side-on logo, black and white, very stark, and it stayed with me. I was at a shitty job drawing, scribbling one day, and I started to draw this captain. And it was, my dad had a black beard, my dad had a, a pipe, my dad had a boat when we were kids, we'd go out on it. So it was all around that. Something just was stirring in me from childhood memories. So this, uh, this logo evolved and I'd always loved single name studios like Resolution or Engine. So I was going to call a captain, but it just felt a bit too plain. So then very obviously it just felt like it needed that positive affirmation at the start of it. Yes, captain, you know, you're on the, the boat and you've got to salute the captain or it's more our motto that yes, yes, we can do that. Yes, we can make it great. Yes, captain was, was it. I have to say, your branding is pretty cool. Thank you. You come across as an interesting-looking studio. What's your approach to marketing your studio? 
Our approach really is using digital means and channels as much as possible. Behance has been really good for us. Putting our work up on Behance as well as obviously our website, we've had many work inquiries from Behance and it can be from anywhere in the world, which is awesome. So some art director can be sitting in uh, Buenos Aires and find our work and like something we've done and come to us and that's happened. We've had a client from US, we've had clients from Melbourne, find us from there. And also Instagram, we're constantly trying to put stuff out there because it's a lot of fun. And another big important thing for us for many reasons, but also for marketing, is making internal projects. It's fun and it allows us to put out our work, show off what we love to do and in the hope that it'll attract more of that kind of work. Do you think that you get much more flow through your social media than you do for your actual website? Yeah, I do. I think times have changed and even though it's, it's really important to have a website, you've got to have something there, but people don't necessarily go to them and look at them that much. I mean, I think they're helpful in terms of if you Google something related to Motion Design Melbourne, yep. we come up pretty much close to the top. What are the biggest challenges and benefits of running your own boutique studio? Being able to take on a lot of work. You know, sometimes it might be a bit quiet, but when it comes in and it's busy, when it rains, it pours. The times when you're trying to resource and get people in, um, that's one of the challenges. Yeah. The challenges are also balancing family time, like we all know, uh, trying to spend as much time with them. I've got a beautiful three-year-old daughter. And, you know, trying to spend a lot of time with them, but also trying to make as much awesome stuff for clients and yourself. AFL Digital Signage. Take us through the process from initial idea to completion. This is a very interesting, unique job. And funnily enough, I, we developed a kind of pitch document. We had an idea being influenced by some of the sports graphics that were happening in America. And I thought this could happen here in the AFL and the cricket. So I didn't know anyone at the AFL though, so I was trying to shop it around. And I took it to people that I knew that might have had contacts. And it kind of went a little bit of a distance and then it stopped. Then out of the blue, the AFL contacted us. So at that stage, I think that was the first year when they'd installed the new screens that go around the MCG and Eddie had, the bottom fence and the parapet level. The AFL had already come up with a lot of uh, creative concepts for the teams and uh, they were giving it to us to take those concepts a lot further. Sadly, there was only one month to create this work for five teams. So there was another company that were already engaged to do some teams. One month to create five teams output from two grounds. It was a boatload of work. So that was when Yes Captain was at our biggest. We had about eight freelancers on and myself working around the clock to get that one out. And did you get much sleep or were you just hammering it out every day? Not much sleep. I, I don't like working late. I'm more of a morning person. So I yeah. come into the studio at 5am. It's great because I get so much done before freelancers rock up. And what was the technical processes behind that project? It was an absolute mindfuck. The pixels was about 40,000 pixels wide and only 96 pixels high, so in ridiculous. And you can't even fit that on a monitor and see it very well. And obviously you can't output it. Uh, After Effects maxes out at 30,000 pixels. So we had to come up with some clever ways. Thankfully, the technical people on their end knew that it had to be divided up. And um, so we did some clever maths. We had some smart people, smarter than me, that came up with some ideas. So ultimately we had to deliver 1,200 little individual QuickTime movies that all had to stitch up seamlessly. Some of them had to leave gaps for where the cameras were or the scoreboards were. And, of course, Eddie had an MCG. We totally different. So it wasn't like we could use the same stuff yep. on both grants. It was different. It was, uh, it was very challenging. And not just technically to deliver it but to design for those sizes. And then, of course, 96 pixels high is not very big, but when you're at the ground, it's still four foot tall. Yeah. So it's massive. So it's incredible. Some of the graphics you'd think on your computer look a bit simple, but when they're in the ground, they look amazing. Yeah, well, I, I was very impressed when I first saw them. I was like, Thank they, they had a lot of impact. So all the stuff we did was pre-game entertainment. If you're a Carlton supporter, you'll see Carlton stuff. If you're a Bombers fan, you'll see Bombers stuff. Yeah. The big highlight of that job, actually, if I can mention it, was being able to work with such talented freelancers. It was an opportunity to bring in, you know, 2D animators, yep. something I can't do. So we animated that frame by frame, hand drawn. Now, I didn't. No, I directed it, but these awesome freelancers came on and did that. So the, if you look at our website, you'll see the bulldog, the kangaroo, the Geelong cat, all hand drawn, frame by frame, done to still look like a vector drawing yep. for the most part. Painstaking work, and you probably could have got away with less, but I think it made it look so much better. And the whole project was 2D? No, um, a lot of it was 3D, like the Carlton needed a character, they wanted a 3D guy running around to look like the Flash with lots of effects and stuff coming off him and there was still lots of flying logos and stuff that were 3D. Those 3D elements were done in element in After Effects just because it was quicker and there was no need to jump into cinema just for a flying logo to spin on such a small resolution. 
cool. Element's great for those quick flying logos. So now I'd like to talk about NodeFest. Could you tell us a little bit about NodeFest and what inspired you to create your own motion graphics conference? I've been to a lot of festivals and conferences and whatnot because it's great to get out from behind the desk and go and get inspired. A lot of these conferences would cost a fortune and they might say they're about creative stuff, but you'd be lucky to get one or two gems of, you know, the people talking or they'd be so broad to cover off everything. And that's fine. That's what they want to do with their festival. But I felt like, gee, it'd be great if there was something that was dedicated to motion graphics. You know, I don't care about all the other things, uh, you know. I just want to hear about motion graphics and animation. But I was hearing some chatter in the industry here that, oh, it's a shame that, you know, there's not something that's really focused for us. And Simon Bronson runs this great thing, uh, Melbourne Motion, at the Loop Bar that I'm sure everyone knows. And that was really starting to grow and there was a good sense from that that people loved that and wanted more. So the writing was on the wall. Then about a year ago I went to a conference that was completely different. Um, I just needed, I was in a bit of a rut and I needed some inspiration. So I went to this conference and I didn't get inspired necessarily by the content, but how well it was run, how well it was put together, how well you could network. We see often in our industry here, there's a kind of devaluing of motion graphics and animation. Agencies and stuff, just maybe they don't appreciate what motion graphics is and they expect a heap for hardly any money, for hardly any time. And that only produces cliched crap work. And we don't want to do that. We just turned something down the other day that was like that. So if we can use NodeFest to bring the industry together, give it a face, give it a shape, give it a name, bring awareness to the craft, that can only help the industry as a whole. That is a very interesting point. I think devaluing of the motion graphics and not being paid as much as it should. Mm -hmm. Like it takes a lot of time to do animation and a lot of skill to get the skill to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think as an industry, it'd be really great there could be a lot of interaction about rising, you know, the actual things that you charge out to a higher level so therefore everyone else can benefit who's doing work at a good level. Mm. I think like other industries, say master builders, like you become a master builder, you are at a certain level and you charge a certain amount. Mm -hmm. And I think that because we're only 15, 20 years old mm -hmm. as an industry, mm -hmm. we haven't really come together as an industry. We're just a whole lot of little people out there doing mm -hmm. their own little things. Mm -hmm. And I think that anything that brings people together can only help the industry. Yeah, I agree. There's, um, yeah, we're not valued enough. There's always this big negotiation um, to get our costs down, which is just not fair. It's just not right. Yeah. And I think that's Australia. I don't know what it's like in America or Europe or anything, but certainly in Australia because we're a kind of a small pool, yep. it feels like it's not as valued. I reckon mm -hmm. we're getting hammered. I want you to tell me about the opening titles for NodeFest. Mm -hmm. I know that you put heaps of time into it mm -hmm. and that you were really passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Take us through the process from initial idea to completion. There's a great freelancer we work with a lot. His name's Ted Adair. He's super talented. He's an awesome guy. So we had two weeks to do the kind of bulk of it. It was just Ted and I and we sat down and brainstormed it. And we really wanted to try and do something different. And a lot of opening titles are very slow and melodic and little tiny titles come up. But we wanted to do something different. And the branding of Node was always to be very loud and irreverent and in your face. So that was the kind of key motivator for the titles. And Keyframe or Die was a fun throwaway tagline that came up through the social media campaign. So those two things were kind of what was informing the titles. And then with Node being four letters, we started to think of four worlds that we could exist in and what keyframes could live inside those worlds. So it's very abstract if you watch it. But it was just uh, how can we have some fun with some attractive design that plays with the linear and the easy ease and all the different keyframes that could live in this world. So it was kind of a simple idea. And then we were having really big titles for the speakers' names rather than these small little dainty ones. Again, we wanted to be kind of big and loud and brash. With Ted, we just brainstormed and concentrated on the previous. Previous is really important just to kind of get in there and play blast, render out grayscale previews, take it into edit, cut, 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 throw ideas out. Don't worry about lighting and rendering until we've got the cut right. And then when Ted finished up his two weeks, then I could sit there and render it and, you know, I had another couple of weeks. The rendering was pretty extreme because we use Arnold, which is great, but it's um, not that fast and we had to go to the render farm, which cost a hell of a lot of money to render it out. Do you feel like if you'd started earlier, you would have rendered it all yourself? Possibly. I mean, in hindsight, we totally always should start things earlier, but we had a monster project. We had a project that was um, a 10-minute 3D explainer that had to be delivered in 4K resolution. Okay. So Ted was working on that and another couple of freelancers, so we couldn't work on the no titles until after that had finished. 
So you're doing everything in uh, low res and then you were cutting it as you went and then you went back and mastered it. Yeah, sort of. It was an iterative process. So we take the hardware render out of Cinema 4D because it renders super quick. It's just grayscale shapes. They could be full res, 1920, but it's just low res shapes. Cut them and then we might do an Arnold render pass of the whole thing with really low settings. So it kind of rendered quickly. And then we could kind of get an idea of is there any rendering mistakes and the light on the wrong side. And then we'd go back and render it again. So we'd render some on my machine because we've only got one license. Arnold's great. It's very expensive for $1,000 per license. And then the rest of the stuff we'd have to render on the cloud farm. And you're sticking with Arnold? They've just put the prices up, which is not great. The cloud render farm that we were using just dropped Arnold because of the price rise. Arnold is CPU-based, which means it's a bit slower than Octane GPU-based. But Arnold are working on a GPU solution, and it looks incredible. They have put out one little teaser image of a side-by-side comparison, and you can't tell the difference between GPU and CPU. And there's rumours in the industry that because they've risen the price of the CPU version, they might be about to come out with a GPU version. I'm hoping they do, so I really don't want to leave Arnold. It's such a beautiful workflow. It's such a gorgeous-looking result. I don't want to have to learn another renderer, so hopefully we can stay with Arnold. But we're certainly going to move to PC and go the GPU route because Mac is a joke. So you're going to leave Mac? Yep, I'm a big Mac fanboy. Um, uh, and it's disappointing that the whole industry switching, and for good reason. I mean, Mac are idiots. Oh, you're killing me. I want to stay with Mac. I don't like using Windows, but at the end I'll just get used to it because you can't choose hardware, you can't upgrade, it's just, and it's so overpriced. How did you go putting together NodeFest? Tell us about the processes, the ideas, the design, the marketing, etc. So we had the idea, my wife and I, and it wouldn't have happened without my wife. I mean, she's done amazing marketing to get it all happening and uh, event planning. I wouldn't have gone in, into the idea without her experience. She's worked on the Sydney Film Festival in the past and things like that. Off the top of the list, the big things were sponsors. Can we get sponsors? Now, Maxon, makers of Cinema 4D and Adobe, they are the kings of the software we use in this industry. If we can get them on board, this is viable. They came on board straight away. We were blown away. I mean, Kim did an amazing job on putting this marketing document together that really sold it. Did you go to them with what you wanted? We went to them with, you know, we want you as gold sponsor and silver sponsor and this is the package and this is what you get. And they were like, yep, where do we sign? It was incredible. We thought they might come back and go, yeah, but we can only give you this tiny bit. No, so without them, the festival wouldn't have happened. Brilliant. Just those two alone. And then everyone else, and I must say, AdamX Australia, the distributor of Maxon, they were in partnership with Maxon in Germany. So without uh, AdamX, Maxon and Adobe, the festival wouldn't have happened. We thought, okay, this is viable. So then it was just one step at a time. Then we really wanted Acme as the venue. You know, Acme, it's central. It's very Melbourne, iconic in Fed Square. It stands for moving image. It's a great theatre. And they were amazing. They looked after us so well. After that, all these... Um, partners came out of the woods. Some of them we didn't approach. They came to us, some of our other smaller uh, sponsors, and they gave us products and freebies and giveaways and stuff like that, which is awesome. And I think that'll grow over the next few years. Well, you seem to sell all your tickets quite quickly. What was the marketing like? Did you have to put a lot of marketing in to sell those tickets? We spent a little bit on Facebook ads just to test it out and try it. And Facebook is so linked with Instagram that it went over to there as well. But it didn't do much. The reach we have in the industry already... Uh, the connections I have, the connections my friends have, it, it was able to grow pretty quickly. But using social media was very important, obviously. So we were constantly trying to uh, put content on Instagram. It was one of the reasons we came up with the no.com. Certainly we wanted to celebrate animation by giving a competition and giving something away. We wanted to reward people yep. that were making stuff, not just expect to exploit what they've made. So then we had that content to put on Instagram so that we were constantly putting out content and that helped grow the audience kind of pretty quickly and putting it out on Facebook. Um, so, you know, we only had to do a couple of Instagram posts a week and a couple of newsletters here and there. So it wasn't like one month of really hard work. It was, yes, it was hard work, but it was spaced out over such a long period of time. It didn't kind of feel like it was hard work. Maybe my wife would say it was hard work because yeah. she had to back all the 200 bags yeah. full of goodies. I had the easier job of just coming up with the branding and uh, approaching the speakers and, and that sort of stuff. All right. So tell us about the experience of being the presenter. Were you nervous? And does public speaking come naturally to you? I guess it does. I was um, When I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor and I did theatre and I was in a whole bunch of plays and stuff. So I guess I, there's a little bit of a performance part of me. Thankfully, I quickly moved on from that and wanted, was more interested in behind the screen. 
I was nervous, absolutely, but um, those nerves disappeared pretty quickly, thankfully, because I was talking to a room full of um, like-minded people and peers. And did you? Were you pretty relaxed the morning of? No, we didn't sleep a wink. We were still putting people's presentations together or my presentation. You know, there were technical little hitches here and there, nothing major, but it was like a kid on Christmas morning. We were looking forward to this day for so long. I was so excited. We couldn't sleep. We had a speaker's dinner the night before. Yeah. We took all the speakers out and had a lovely meal, and thanks to Adobe, and they supported that. And um, we stayed in the city, my wife and I, so that we could go straight to Fed Square in the morning. So we just had this crap hotel bed, and we were too excited, so we barely slept. And we were buggered by the after party, but it was worth it. We were on a high, certainly running on adrenaline. Everyone looked really happy at the end, so I suppose that's really the success. That was the big takeaway for us. We were so happy that everyone else was happy and the response did a survey and we got some great responses from that. And um, there's a few things we can improve, definitely, moving forward. There always is. But generally, I think we got a few things right and people had a great time. What were the main challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? The biggest challenge was getting the presentations from the speakers. Uh, the speakers were all fabulous. They were all great. And it is it is hard to expect people to give you stuff when they're working and they're not getting paid to speak. And that's why we took them out. We, we covered their transport costs. We did everything to look after them. But, you know, so we were deliberately trying to get their presentations as a keynote or whatever off them as soon as possible. So with like a month to spare so we could rehearse it, test it. Of course, that didn't happen. We pushed and pushed and pushed and some of them we didn't get till the night before. And it was always going to be the case. And because these people are doing it for free and we understand, we appreciate it, but that's probably the trickiest thing. So what are your dreams and plans for NodeFest into the future? Yeah, we're really excited. Um, we've just had confirmation of some really cool people that are going to be doing the titles for this year. I can't say who yet. And, of course, we are doing Node again. Get on the website and sign up to the newsletter to hear all about it, nodefest.com.au. We've got a list of speakers that we're going to start approaching, some big names. Hopefully we can get them. And we're hoping to do some smaller events in other cities in the future too, but that's a, a bit of a way off at the moment. And we're definitely going to do the Node Ident Comp again and we're going to make that bigger and better. I'd definitely like to see it grow uh, around the country um, and to embrace so Australia, New Zealand, maybe parts of Asia. And, um, yeah, I think that's the main thing. Just keep on building it, bringing it together, make it bigger. Uh, but at the same time, make it not too big because the happiness that we captured, it's kind of a, like a family feeling and we don't want it to get to the point where it's 2,000 people when you can't easily network. So it's got to keep it small but maybe have a little bit more of it going on all year round in various places. Well, for me, what would made Node so great was the ability to go and talk to people that I'd seen in the industry or I'd worked with in the past. And I found it as the networking mm -hmm. was better than any conference I'd ever been to. Mm -hmm. It was right. so easy to see people and figure it out. So I think you're right on the... Uh, on and the and the, the, a key point about it too was making value for money. We've yeah. been to a lot of conferences and they're like $300, $400. It's ridiculous. Yes, it costs a bit of money to put them on, but we wanted to make it affordable, especially yeah. for students. We want to get more students involved this year. Thought the node was, yeah, it was definitely a highlight of this year. Thank you. I can't believe we did it. I mean, from a, a flippant idea, and I have a new flippant idea every day, um, so we're super excited that it happened, that it was so well received, and we can't wait to do it again. What do you think that the biggest challenges are facing studios at present? Shrinking budgets and unrealistic expectations. I mean, we were approached by an agency just recently and they wanted us to create a 30-second animation for our known brand in a week and a half. And they had hardly any money. Are we a charity? So yeah. we turned it down. Well, when I was starting out as a freelancer, maybe I would have taken it because you're desperate for work, but that's just ridiculous. I mean, that's only going to result in cliches and... Do you think that the causes of that is that uh, there's too many animators out there, like low-quality ones that aren't charging that much? Maybe, but I think it's more a question of there's too many chefs, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. So you've got the client, you've got the agency, you might have a post-production place as well, and then you've got us, the animation studio. Everyone wants to take their piece of the yeah. pie. So we're finding it's much better to have direct clients. It's more efficient, it's more value for money, it's better communication, that doesn't mean they have to spend a fortune, but it's just, you know, not everyone's taking their piece of the pie. So I'm sure the agency was still charging a good price, but they just don't want to keep much to give to the people that got to do the work. Which Australian studios or artists do you think are presently doing great work? Individuals that come to mind. I mean, Raoul Marx, who we were lucky enough to have at Node, and Patrick Clare, who work a lot together and work more out of Elastic, the LA studio. It's so great to see Australians doing well and doing well on the global scale. And Brett Morris, you'd put him up there too 
who's now in LA. Those guys are incredible. I mean, Rao particular, that he could create those semi-permanent titles himself in about a month, blows my mind. It's rare to find someone that's really good at the technical knowledge as well as um, the creative visionary side of things. So he's a freaking genius. I love him and I hate him all in one because I'm totally jealous of his mad skills. Allure us from a visual effects side. Their work on Game of Thrones is extraordinary and nearly everything they touch. Yeah, well, I think that Mighty Nice <coughs> has been like oh, yeah. my studio of the year. I think that they're doing some pretty cool work. Yep, that's a good choice. I, I don't look at their work often enough because I guess it's more in the TVC character land. But, yeah, they always do beautiful stuff. Sadly, motion design is all the, the branding stuff that used to be really great about eight years ago. It's changed so much. I used to worship your Z spaces and all them that were doing amazing TV branding. But now all the TV branding is gone in-house and is tasteless and is really massive fonts and same explosive cliched crap. I actually, the guys that work on the project, I mean, it's extraordinary the work they do on such a frightening time frame. I can't imagine spitting out that kind of infographic stuff so quickly. So they do a great job as well. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of pitching and how do you think that pitching affects the industry? Pitching is cancer. We don't pitch. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? I guess we kind of pitched once. We were told that there were other people pitching and then we found out that there weren't and we, well, we obviously won it because we were the only ones. So a producer just said that to make us, I don't know, work harder or something and we did really want that job and we won it. Because things have changed and TV branding has, has changed a bit, that's the space where pitching happens a lot. Um, there's not that much pitching in web explainers. There was a company in India that approached us. There was this huge amount of work they wanted in a pitch, and I was like, no, uh, I'm not doing free work. Yeah. Have a look at our website. Do you like our work? Is it good? Yep, hire us. Ask for a quote. Yeah, well, I Simple think, as that. I think that that's pretty awesome. I think that you don't go to the dentist and get them to, like, shine your teeth first to see if they do a good job and yeah. ask them if they can do that for free. It's, it comes back to what I was talking about, about uh, valuing what we do, valuing the craft or devaluing it. So sometimes the fault is our own. If we keep pitching, we're going to devalue the work. We're not, don't do free work. Yeah, well, I think that the industry would be a lot better off if all that time that was spent in pitching was actually spent in paid work mm -hmm. because it really hurts your bottom line uh, investing time in, in stuff that just doesn't go anywhere. I think, let's call it out now, everyone in this industry strike from pitching. If nobody does a pitch and these companies only can hire you based on your awesome reel, yeah. uh, the relationship that they have with you and your quote, if they can't make a decision based around those things, then tell them to go jump. I'm not doing free work. Yeah, well, maybe it's not a, a total strike, but maybe it's like a no-pitch November or something like mm -hmm. that. Well, what's the new rules for you can't take your kid to preschool if they haven't had a jab? No jab, no play. So I think it's that now, no jab, no play. A lot of people have different varied opinions on pitching, mm. uh, and I ask everyone about it, but everyone sort of grimaces when you ask them. Mm. Um, and I'm sure it's harder for some people that if, if they don't pitch, they won't get any work, but we've got to change the tide. How do you see 3D motion design industry developing or changing in the future? I'm pretty fascinated with the render wars at the moment. That's what they're calling it. There's so many different render engines coming out. It's really exciting. It means that things can, are getting so much faster with all this GPU rendering and the technology there to just get amazing images coming out quickly. That could be dangerous too because then clients and stuff expect things quicker and they might think, well, it's cheaper, it's faster. People keep talking about VR and AR. It doesn't really spin my wheels at the moment, but um, I guess there's going to be growth in that industry, but they've been talking about it growing for a long time. Where do you look for inspiration? Porn, midget porn. A lot of that's good. Game of Thrones? That's not midget porn, <laughs> just because it's got a midget in it. Inspiration, it comes from everywhere. Everyone says it. I, I, I do spend way too much time on the computer, um, <laughs> so uh, on the net, uh, Instagram. I mean, there's so much great stuff on Instagram at the moment. If you look at... You're kind of people and all these people that do 3D daily renders and stuff. But it can also be overwhelming because they're so good or they're getting a bit samey. It comes from my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, who says the most amazing, crazy, funny things can come from anywhere. Who in your career has inspired you? Stephen Van Eyst, the former creative director at Allura, their design team before that ended. He was incredible creative director, just could solve any problem, would trust people, including myself, to go away and solve a problem. He wouldn't hover. He would uh, let you solve it. And then if you've got a problem, he'd come and help. 
and he could help with nearly anything and everything. And I think he's definitely been someone that's helped inspire me to how I've been a creative director in my business. I'd really like to get him on. I think that his work that he's been doing since Allure overseas is really interesting. Mm. Uh, he does a lot of car shows mm. and uh, they're like big million-dollar extravagances. Yeah, super talented. He smells funny. He's got a weird, <laughs> you know, and he looks funny. So we had a healthy relationship of giving each other shit. But, yeah, great guy. Cool. How do you sharpen your 3D skills and improve your style? Sometimes I wish that it was like the Matrix so you could just plug in and learn everything really quickly. It's so much to learn and, it, you know, I'm in my early 40s, which doesn't mean I'm old but it just means you sort of look back sometimes at these 20-year-old guys that are better than you. You're so much better and you know so much more and I'm, like, getting old and, oh, I wish I knew everything you knew and so I wish I could just plug something in and learn it straight away. But it's kind of good having this carrot that's always in front of you because you're not kind of just sit on your laurels and, okay, I'm, I'm good enough now. I don't ever want to be good enough. I, want, I don't want to retire. I don't think of retiring, you know. So I'm always learning there's so many good tutorials or inspiring stuff on the net or playing and experimenting, or this is, I think, really important. And no matter what age or level you're at, make your own personal projects. Even though I made that short film that took nine years and killed me, I'm still going to make more. So what does the future look like for you? I think ultimately I've always wanted to make my own content. So I, I grew up dreaming of being a director, like a Steven Spielberg or something, probably more in a live-action sense. A little bit ambitious. Very ambitious, no doubt about it. And people might say I look like Peter Jackson after a few pies. So, yeah, super ambitious. And so, you know, the landscape's changed. I don't have as burning a desire to make films anymore because TV's so rich at the moment. But I've realised it doesn't matter if I make a feature film or not. It, I just want to make content. And that can be a tiny one-minute content. That can be something bigger. I'd love to make a bigger web series or TV series. So that's definitely the drive behind Yes Captain is to make great stuff for clients but also make great stuff for ourselves. So still want to make our own stories. It's a great place to finish up. Thanks very much for taking the time to tell us all about your process and giving us an insight into Node. Uh, yeah, it's been really great. Hopefully you're feeling a bit better soon. It's been great to talk and hopefully everyone out there has enjoyed what I've had to say or thinks I'm a Muppet and send me an email saying you're a Muppet. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you could come find us on Facebook. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a like. You can find James Cohen at yescaptain.net or nodefest.com.au. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is a mega interview. Mega. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Gadget. Next time. <laughs> I have no idea how I can put that in. <laughs> <laughs> Masters of Motion. <laughs>